This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 10th, 2022, the extremely surprising election edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Denver, Colorado, gathering with my CityCast my CityCast tribe. I'm so happy to be here, but it does mean that I'm not in Washington, D.C., so we have no Washington, D.C. presence because John Dickerson of CBS Primetime is in New York, fresh off what was probably like 67 straight hours of staring at a map. Hello, John. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, staring mostly at tables, actually, of who voted where and how much and all that. But um, yes, a lot of staring into a small screen. And then Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. She does know staring, only gazing contemplatively at the heavens. Hello, Emily from New Haven. Uh, Hello. Good morning. I like that image of myself. This week on the GabFest, we will devote our first two segments to the election. What happened? Why did it happen? What was surprising? And who won? We'll talk about that in the first segment. And then in the second segment, we'll talk about the consequences of the election in terms of policy, politics, and what will change in the next two years and beyond. Then we'll talk about a Supreme Court case that is fascinating about the scope of the Indian Child Welfare Act and whether Indian tribes are political or racial classifications. That's a kind of simplification, but a really, really interesting case. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, dear friends, that it is conundrum time. We are preparing for our annual conundrum show Please send us your conundrums so we can work through life's important questions, such as, if you needed to hide an elephant, how would you do it? If you could be vice president to any president, who would it be and why? Or if you had to be a tree or a fish, which would you choose? Please submit your conundrums at slate.com slash conundrums. And we are so looking forward to revisiting that this winter with you. And I'm sure we'll have a great guest to do it with, too. Slate.com slash conundrums. John, that's the question. What I think we can say as of this taping Thursday morning, which is true, which is essentially the locked in assumptions people had about the pain that that economy and crime, let's just say we're going to deliver to Democrats, was significantly blunted by, I think, at least two things on the Democratic side, success um, using a success on the abortion issue, using that as a motivational force in different kinds of races. In some races, it worked. In some races, it didn't. But abortion played a key role in protecting against the wave. So if you wear a wetsuit to protect against the wave, the wave was coming. The wetsuit is made up of um, voters who are motivated by the Dobbs decision. Also, though, voters, independents, and we'll get inside the numbers in a minute, particularly who were frightened, scared, whatever, about Republican extremism, independents in particular. Uh, and that, I think, touches on and connects to the, side, the idea of democracy being on the ballot. So those were two of the things that protected. And the third, and this is wrapped up with that, is that Democrats turned out um, in an off-year election in which traditionally you would not expect the in-party to be as motivated as Democrats appear to have been, and particularly younger voters who, um, black voters and younger voters in particular, voted close to their 2018 levels. Um, And why is 2018 important? Because 2018 was kind of a record year for Democrats in those constituencies because they were motivated by Donald Trump. So here you have the in-party in a midterm election where turnout is usually low, voting the way they do when they're the out party. And again, that may be because they're motivated by abortion and extremism, or they may just have turned out because they're Democrats who want, you know, the world to go in the Democratic direction. John actually just situated us a little bit more. So as we as we are right now, it appears that the House will probably be in the Republican under Republican control. Where would you rate the Senate right now? The Senate at the moment, you've still got Arizona, as of this recording, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. Georgia's going to a runoff. Nevada looks like it's trending red. Um, and Arizona looks like it's trending blue. So if Republicans and Democrats split one each in Nevada and Arizona, that means control of the Senate will come down to the outcome of the runoff in Georgia, which will uh, be decided on the 6th of December between Walker and Warnock. Um, runoffs are only between two candidates. Um, and that means the entire Senate question will be um, up for grabs in um, 
in Georgia. If for some reason Nevada doesn't go, Laxalt doesn't beat uh, Cortez Masto in Nevada, then then Georgia will lose. You know, it's it's super powerful salience. It won't be for control of the Senate. It'll just be an important an important race. Just one tiny note there, because I was surprised by this. I was um, looking at Joe Ralston's Twitter feed. He's a Nevada elections guru, and he made it seem more possible that Cortez Masto might pull it out based on the remaining mail-in ballots than I had assumed. So I'm just noting that for now. Very transient Thursday morning observation. Emily, I feel like you're the living embodiment of the two issues, which which seems to have broken in Democrats' favor. I mean, you've obviously written a ton about reproductive rights and how the Dobbs decision is affecting the country. And then you've also been written a ton about the election di- denialism and and election subversion. Were you surprised that these two issues seem to have resonated so much with voters? Yes, I was surprised. And I'm going to be really curious when we get better exit polls to see if indeed this is what voters were responding to. I mean, it seemed like from the initial polls, which I think are not really weighted um, for who voted versus who answers exit poll questions. But it seemed like they were pretty salient and higher on voters' minds. And I was surprised. I mean, partly, I think, because when you cover things like this that are thorny and difficult, you kind of get a little beaten down and worry that you're not getting through to people as you're like constantly trying to make it as bright and clear and interesting as possible. So yes, I was surprised. And I think there's a dynamic where given that the polls were off in Republicans' favor in 2016, and there's just been a sort of shaky feeling about the polls since then, and I think there just was... Uh, among a lot of pundits, this sense of that the Democrats were doomed. I think I was reading a lot of that mindset. And that made me more surprised, even though when you look at, you know, 538 or some of the other really good polling analysis, they actually like predicted a 50-50 Senate. Yeah. I mean, they also predicted all these races that are close and that we still haven't called are all close. Exactly. I mean, so, you know, if Fetterman, it's not like Fetterman won by 10 points. Exactly. And also, it wasn't just pundits and analysts. I mean, it was the the, the people running these campaigns. I mean, um, Congressman Clyburn talked to uh, Bob Costa at the beginning of our coverage on election night. And at the beginning of the night, he was saying, you know, Democrats need to rethink their their strategy and their message and all that. I mean, he was preparing for a, a huge wipeout. One of the things that I've been unable to comprehend, because I am not as uh, comprehensive in my knowledge as you are, John, is... If you look across these results, is it the case that the more extreme Republican candidates did significantly worse than regular Republicans? Like, is the Republican caucus that we will see in the Senate, in the House, and in state legislatures and governor's office, is it a more traditional Republican caucus? No. Okay. (laughs) So, well, this is what's interesting. So look at four senators who won in Alabama, North Carolina, Missouri, and um, Ohio. Those four senators who were replacing Republican senators are more extreme. They are all election deniers in one form or another. Let's look at Ohio. Rob Portman wrote the infrastructure bill. J.D. Vance said he wouldn't have voted for the infrastructure bill. J.D. Vance um, has essentially the Trump position on trade with China. Uh, Rob Portman was... U.S. trade representative. And we can go on down the line. Um, so in that case, you have four Republican senators coming to Washington who, um, at least for the purposes of winning their election, played footsie with or, in fact, gave the full embrace to Donald Trump and MAGA. Now, there are all kinds of incentives for them to pretend they didn't now um, because Donald Trump is in a jittery moment. And also, like Ron DeSantis won going away. However, there is, and this I'm not certain on this. But however, there was a kind of lingering issue for Republicans that kept them from winning all these races they thought they were going to win in the House race. I mean, they were incredibly overconfident about races they were going to win in places that Biden had won with 58% of the vote. Kevin McCarthy went to the 10th District of Virginia right before the election. Um, That was a place not only that Biden had won with 58% of the vote, but um, Terry McAuliffe had won with 5% of the vote, and they thought they were going to possibly win in those places. And they sent the first lady down there to help uh, shore up the Democrat in that district because Democrats were worried about that. Well, they didn't come close in the 10th. They didn't, uh, Republicans didn't win in the 7th. They didn't win in in, uh, Rhode Island 2, Connecticut 5, all these places they thought, Indiana 1, all these places they thought they were going to make inroads into, they just didn't win. And I think part of that is some of its candidate quality. Some of it, though, is that there was a general 
problem for Republicans because of the um, extremism associated with the party. And this, even if Republicans were turning out, surprisingly for an off-year election, the in-party Democrats were turning out too. Can I ask a question about women? There was a lot of discussion, and we talked about it too, of this idea that women seemed like they were going to vote on Dobbs over the summer, and then they seemed to be, especially independent women, swing to Republicans. Do we know what actually happened in the end? What we identified last week, and or in our Atlanta show in the week before, was that there was a big Republican swing among suburban women, and exit polls don't have a don't track suburban women um, that I can find at the moment. At least ours, our uh, slicing the numbers doesn't. But what we do know is that Republicans won white women, which is sometimes a rough proxy. Um, Republicans uh, won them by eight points, whereas in 2018, Democrats had that were even with white women. Overall, though, Democrats won women by eight points, but that was down 11 points from the margin of victory the Democrats had in 2018. So in 2018, essentially, Democrats beat Republicans by 19 points among women. In 2022, Democrats only beat them by eight points. So I think that's so the the trend was certainly there moving women moving towards Republicans. um, But whether it was as large as those pre-election polls Um, had suggested, I don't think that's the case. I have a completely untested theory about Joe Biden's disapproval rating that I want to run by you guys. So this seems like a real yoke around the neck of Democrats that Biden's approval rating has been in the low 40s. I wonder if people care less than it seems like they should at the polls because they have a sort of mild sense of disapproval for Joe Biden. They don't love him, but they're not viscerally responding to him the way a disapproval rating for Donald Trump would translate. You're, I mean, that's not just a theory. You're, it's, it's proved by the exit polls. Oh, uh, um, how convenient yeah, for no, me. People, voters were much more voting against Obama and voting against Trump than they were voting against Biden, which I think is also, when we think about the determinism that was not insane for all of the strategists in the Democratic and Republican Party and lots of analysts to um, think about. Uh, one of the pieces of the determinism beyond the economic view was that a president, you know, I said it 8 million times too, a president who's below 50% in approval rating has lost an average of 36 um, seats since World War, since World War II. Um, and the... Part of that is basically, you know, people don't like the sitting president and the exits showed that um, they just weren't that exercised about Joe Biden. Um, And so you're I think uh, you're exactly right about that. I cannot just an ending. I just can't believe that this is coming down again to a Georgia Senate runoff and that we're going to have to go through this again. It is exhausting. What's fascinating, it seems to me, about that race, A, I mean, we don't know if it'll be for the whole control of the Senate, which will change the dynamic, but um, Donald Trump is in some, you know, there's a lot of second guessing about Trump, A, based on the candidates that he helped get through the primaries, and and Herschel Walker is, a, is kind of the poster child for the candidate quality question, and so is Oz, obviously, um, and, and Blake Masters in Arizona. But um, but also, you know, he's got Trump is in um has added to this idea of extremism, obviously, but it's not just Donald Trump. It's a party that basically, despite Trump breaking every possible rule in what was previously their set of belief systems, none of them really spoke up about it. And those that did are gone. Ten of the people who voted for Trump's second impeachment, eight of them are gone from the House. Um, but Trump is toxic in in Georgia. I mean, his, you know, David Perdue lost by 50 points to Brian Kemp in the primary for governor in in Georgia. And Perdue was the hand-selected, groomed, and um, uh, candidate of Donald Trump. So what happens in a runoff in terms of this break with the party if it's happening with Trump? You know, will they want Trump to not, you know, like spend all of his time in in some other country to change that dynamic in Georgia? Or will Trump insert himself because he's worried that he's he's dying as everybody falls in love with Ron DeSantis? Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. And this week, we're going to do a Slate Plus segment on some of the closer to home, smaller, uh, maybe slightly more obscure election results that fascinated us. We're each going to pick out one or two things that that weren't main headlines in the New York Times, but which are interesting nonetheless, and talk about them. Now we turn to the consequences of the election. Uh, How is the country likely to be governed in the next two years? Who 
is set up for political success, Ron DeSantis, who is set up for political success in the next two years and going forward, and what political and policy crises are we likely to see because of these election results? Emily, as we were finishing that last segment, um, talking about Trump, of course, when you talk about Trump now, you talk about DeSantis. DeSantis had this incredible fantastically wide victory in Florida where he he really swept that state a state which has historically been seen as a as a as a tightly contested state but it doesn't seem to be anymore it seems to be a republican state and he way outperformed as john mentioned his performance in his previous run for governor uh and it looks like he is going to be a very serious challenger to donald trump Right. And so then you imagine if there really is a what looks like a two person race that Trump in particular is going to try to destroy DeSantis. I mean, we already see this with him calling DeSantis um, to sanctimonious and insinuate name to sanctimonious. I don't think it's that I mean, bad. first of all, Ron DeSantis does not it's seem sanctimonious word. at all. That is not like what. Really? I well, think he's kind of humorous. I don't know. I don't. But it, he can he can be sanctimonious and it, it can still be a terrible nickname. Fair I mean, enough. He's a politician. Fair enough. Anyway, I think it's going to be a mess. And that presumably is uh, not going to be great for Republicans. And then the second dynamic that seems likely to emerge, okay, so you have a Republican House with a razor-thin majority, which makes Kevin McCarthy, the new Republican House presumptive leader's life miserable, right? That's very hard. On the other hand, that also could mean that they're being led by the nose by the more extreme Republican members and that, what's it called, that Freedom Caucus, those people who are always threatening some crazy tunes thing, like, you know, not paying, not lifting the death ceiling or whatever shenanigans they're going to pull. Wait. What? Can, can I just, crazy tunes? Is that like the off-brand version of Looney Tunes? Yeah, it is. Okay. Oh, Looney Tunes. I am. I don't care. I'm not. You may like the Marvel universe over the DC universe, but I like the Crazy Tunes universe over the Looney Tunes universe. I appreciate that. I didn't really even mean that, but thank you. So anyway, let's set aside the Senate for a moment since it remains a question mark. But you could imagine a world in which the Democrats and particularly President Biden are running against Republicans acting sort of their worst, which looks like a pretty good dynamic for Democrats. And then if Democrats hold the Senate, that's really the best possible outcome, because then Biden still is able to confirm judges. He's able to, you know, shuffle his cabinet around if he wants to do that. That's I mean, yeah, that's the question mark part. But that sounds like a pretty good. I mean, I'm sure a million things will go wrong, as they always do, or go differently than I'm suggesting. But it just seems like maybe at least a good place for Democrats to start as they look into the next two years. I think as a political matter, what you're describing probably is a decent case for Democrats to have a crazy House that is that is acting self-destructively and a Senate that is able to at least approve judges and do do various things to get uh, Biden's appointees through. But it, for the country as a whole, it's pretty depressing. The chance of any kind of major legislation would be drops to nil. Minor legislation probably drops to nil. The if the GOP House is like emboldened to do something nihilistic, like like not pay, you know, not allow us to pay our debts um, or not pass a budget, then that's a really bad outcome for the country in the way people actually live, like not having national parks open, not having the full faith and credit of the United States trusted across the world anymore. Those are problematic things. So I, I'm not, I think as a, as a political matter, it might be good for Democrats for the Republican house to be crazy uh, and not doing anything as a, as a uh, citizen. I don't, I'm not too happy about it. There's so many different categories of, um, uh, of things to talk about. in in, in this case, I mean, right. We don't know what the situation is. I think just to your point, Emily, about the freedom caucus and the crazy tunes, um, if if it looks like the House goes to the Republicans and Kevin McCarthy has to to run, I mean, has to be Speaker, I mean, his um, troublemaking caucus is so much worse than the squad for Nancy Pelosi. It's hard to even talk about them in the same context. And his leadership ability is not tested the way Nancy Pelosi's is. I mean, John Boehner, remember in Republican history, John Boehner called 
people in the Freedom Caucus, like Jim Jordan, political terrorists because they didn't care about any of the things you have to actually do to govern. Newt Gingrich, when he was forced out by his version of the Freedom Caucus, called them political cannibals. Those those two speakers had what looked like larger margins than McCarthy has. When you have a larger margin, you can allow some of your more uh, bouncy colleagues to go bounce around and it doesn't threaten your votes. But when you say you have to get everything with Republican votes, it's almost impossible to govern, which means then you need Democratic votes to do anything. And when you start needing Democratic votes to do things, you change the legislation you're trying to pass so um, majorly to get those Democratic votes that you then start losing more Republican votes. These are the dynamics that essentially, um, you know, crumpled Ryan, Boehner, and to some smaller degree, uh, Gingrich. So that's the kind of fun that Kevin McCarthy has to deal with. And also then it determines who's in charge of the Senate. Um, if it is Republicans, Mitch McConnell's not a House Freedom Caucus kind of guy. So when it comes to those budget questions you're talking about, David, McConnell does care about um you know, not destroying um, the U.S. economy by messing with the debt limit. Remember when TARP didn't pass the House first under George W. Bush, the market dropped 900 points in a day, and then all of the Republicans who didn't vote for TARP changed their position um, and got it through. Now, that may not have been good policy, but it's what ultimately happened is there was a kind of the Republicans in the Senate kind of convince the House Republicans um, to do the right thing. And that's you'd have that dynamic all the time. Adding to that is the fact that you have all the the Trump allies blaming McConnell for not supporting various Trump candidates. But the McConnell wing of the Republican Party blaming Trump for putting candidates into races that are all um, terrible candidates and that are costing the Republicans the, the Senate. That dynamic will repeat itself a thousand times over on every fight. Um, as the Trump-aligned folks in Congress um, assert themselves uh, on every possible budget and, and legislative thing. So it's going to be um, messy, which will maybe distract Democrats from their own messiness, which is probably not great for Democrats. Can, can we go back actually to the point, Emily, you were making at the beginning about DeSantis? And DeSantis clearly had the best night of anybody on Tuesday. He is the happiest man in America. Um, but... Is it certainly a two-person race for the Republican nomination for president, John? Do, is, is it really just already it's got to be one of these two guys and there's not any other credible candidate? And is it and is it pretty clear that Trump is is so wounded that DeSantis is going to walk to it? Or or do you feel like there's there are many, many uh, acts to it's play? It's probably in DeSantis's um, interest to have a lot of candidates at the beginning because it would it would send the message that the Republican Party has moved on from Donald Trump. Um, all of the things that Donald Trump did while he was in office to change the standards and norms of the way we think about politics, America, and the office weren't enough to break apart uh, the um, lock he had on the party. But perhaps his, um, you know, having picked a few bad candidates um, will break the lock on the party, which gives you some sense of the of the underlying truth of Donald Trump, which is that he did so well in the Republican Party because he was a winner and people would basically put everything else aside. The majority of, of Republicans would put everything else aside if winning was what he could deliver to them uh, and the max and, and an effective use of power. But once he looks like he's not effective, I mean, he's now essentially lost in 18, 20 and 22. So he might actually be in trouble, but but it needs to be a multi, probably a multi-fight. Now, as I say that, obviously that's how he won the nomination in 16. The non-Donald Trump vote in the primaries was larger than the vote that went for Donald Trump, but because it was split across candidates. Um, but, I, but I think that DeSantis doesn't necessarily want this to be one-on-one. -on -one. And also for Glenn Youngkin in um, Virginia, you know, you got to move when it's your time. One dynamic I'm interested in with the Republicans is how much primary voters and the primary field recognizes that they could make this a generational contest, right? They could realize that a potential weakness for Biden is his age. He's, I think, about to turn 80 and not pick Trump, who's the old guy in that mix, unless there's another old person I'm forgetting. Any one of the people you named is in the more like 50s category, right? Or somewhere around there. And that would let the Republicans kind of claim if not youth, at least middle age. It's an excellent point. But as I try to think this through, um, I mean, the Do Donald Trump is the is the 
greatest and most effective chaos Muppet in the Republican ranks. Um, I'm just ringing in my ears as his interview with Bob Costa and Bob Woodward in 2016, where they were trying to say to him, you know, you have to put your party back together after these primaries. He's like, no, I'm going to win first. This is at the end of the primaries. He's like, no, I'm going to win first and they will all come fall in line behind me. And he was a thousand percent right. And he's been right about that all the way through basically testing every norm of American political life. And he's always been right about his party falling in behind him. Maybe he'll be wrong this time, but that's just in my mind how right he has read um, his his party and, and their tolerance for him. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a genuinely enthralling case involving the Indian Child Welfare Act. Indian law and Indian treaty cases are fascinating because they have a very different kind of valence than other cases because they're rooted in two foundational issues in the history of this country. First, the creation of the United States involved the expulsion and murder and expropriation of property of the native populations that occupied the land before European settlement. And that mistreatment carried forward in all kinds of ways has carried forward in the history of the country, including very intentional efforts to destroy Indian identity through the forcible re-education and relocation of children. And then second, Indian tribes have a relationship with the United States government by treaty that is entirely different than the relationship that any other group has with the United States. They are nations within the nation. They are not like any other group. And so when cases come up about the relationship between Indian tribes and Indians and and the United States government, it's always really interesting. And this is no exception. So Emily, set uh, set the stage for us on this Indian child welfare case. The Indian Child Welfare Act, let's just back up a second, passed, Congress passed this law because there was this um, terrible history of um, Native American children being taken away from their families and their tribes and put into boarding schools where they're often abused. There was a lot of neglect. It's just a really sordid chapter of American history. And so it's called, for short, the ICWA, this law. And what it does is say that um, the first... When there's a child whose parents can't take care of them, first you go to the family, then you go to the tribe, and then you go to another tribe. And you're supposed to take those um, placements into account in a way that isn't quite the same as what we would normally do with another kid where you just consider the best interests of the child. You're supposed to give more weight. And the idea is that tribal identity and the community has a kind of stake here and a value that is particular to um, Indian law and to Native American um, society and culture. And there, you know, like I said, there's this deep history supporting this law. The question in this case is whether... Congress had the power to pass this law in the first place, which is really a very radical view of this area of law. And so what the challengers are arguing is that this is a race-based classification, and thus it's unconstitutional, that it violates the Equal Protection Clause because you're treating um, Native American children differently on the basis of race. And, of course, what the defenders of the law are saying is, wait a second, as David, as you um, discussed in your intro, these are tribes with sovereign identities. This is also or primarily a political identity that Congress is paying attention to. And so that's the kind of fundamental tension in the case. And, you know, then we can talk about how the different justices were grappling with this question in the context of this challenge. And we should note that... When a case involving a, a child who needs to be fostered or put up for adoption takes place on tribal land, a child who's living on tribal land, it's very clear that the tribe and tribal authority makes the decisions or has the authority to make the decision about that. This is involves children who are not living on tribal land. In fact, in a lot of cases, are not enrolled in the tribe. And th- that's where it gets really complicated. Yes. Then those cases get litigated in state court. And the question is, what standard does the Indian Child Welfare Act impose on state court judges who would otherwise use a best interest standard? And one of the things that the challengers to the law argued was that these kids who are not enrolled in tribes, like that they were sort of having this identity imposed on them by other adults, which is another whole question about you know, how to think about kids and where they come from and who they are and how they develop their identities. Well, it does seem to me that if that if a child is an enrolled member of a tribe, that there's a very strong case given the 
sovereign nature of tribes. There's a very strong case that you like should be very respectful of the tribe's decision of that identity of the child. If a child is not an enrolled member of the tribe, their parents and their parents, let's say, have not made that choice, then isn't that in itself a kind of political decision that a child that the, that the family has made? The, the child has politi- has said, we don't want to be part of this polity. We don't want the child to be part of this polity. And therefore, treating the child who is as part of this polity and, and, and imposing this identity on them, even though the parents specifically didn't make a choice to enroll the child in the tribe, seems odd to me. That's interesting. I mean, I guess I think it's really um, important to imagine that some kids could grow up and want to reclaim that identity. I also, and also people have reasons, especially if they're not um, on tribal land for not enrolling um, in a tribe. And so I don't think it's always like a conscious choice. Oh, I don't want to do this. It can just be not knowing how to do it or the difficulty of pulling it off or just the circumstances that someone's in. What I care much more about is what do you do? You know, to me, what's fundamental with child placement cases is making sure the kid is going to be okay. And so I get very nervous in any context where you have a child who's placed in a family who's thriving and then gets taken from that family after, you know, certain a number of months or, you know, a couple of years. That I find that often to be pretty devastating because we know that kids attach and that just seems to me like a moment where you would want the best interest standard to really um, have some purchase. But that part of the conversation is not uh, necessarily front and center in these particular challenges. It's much more about these questions of, like what you were talking about, David, what about from the get-go? So it's less about whether you might harm a child by taking them away from a non-Native family where they were placed as making sure that that doesn't happen in the first place and wondering whether tribes even have the ability to do that. Is is really the fight over whether they should be placed with other Indian families? Because it does seem to me also really weird to think you're an enrolled member of Tribe A, and the way that we're going to protect your Indian identity is to have you live with a family in Tribe B. It's not clear why those things. I mean, these are distinct sovereign nations. They are distinct nations. And therefore, you should protect that national identity. But how do you protect that national identity by enrolling them in or by having them placed with a family that's of an entirely different identity that treats Indianness as a single kind of as a single thing rather than as these disparate things. Yeah. I mean, that was the point of a couple of the conservative justices, justice Barrett to your exact point said it's treating um, Indian identity as fungible. And I think that part of the law seems the most vulnerable. You can imagine, though, a situation in which um, there's a way in which tribes have a close relationship or some sense that at least they'll be evaluating of the idea of being a Native kid. I don't mean to make it sound like they're interchangeable, but it doesn't seem irrational to me. And remember, if this is a political identity, then all that Congress needs is a rational basis for this law. If the court thinks this is a racial identity, then, you know, there's a higher standard. Uh, And... So we'll just have to see what's going to happen on the court. Given the incredibly terrible history of how tribes have been treated and how Indian children have been treated, you want to be very respectful of the the views of tribes about how what are when tribes say we want to preserve this identity. Here are the steps that we think are the best steps in the, given the circumstances to preserve identity. It feels like there's an obligation given terrible way the government has handled this before is an obligation to be respectful of what the tribes say they think is the best interest of the child in these cases, because certainly the U.S. government did not act in the best interest of the child over centuries before that. Right. And I guess one thing I was thinking about um, absorbing the arguments yesterday is, so imagine you have a newborn baby or, you know, a very young infant, and the family is not on tribal land, and maybe they're not enrolled. But the um, state authorities deciding whether to where to place this infant know that they have this tribal uh, connection and that ICWA governs. So in that moment, given the history that we've been talking about, wouldn't you want the American government first to look to the tribes for a placement for this kid? Like, why would you want that child to go to a non-Native family without any consideration of this history and tradition they come from when we're talking about this, you know, incredibly um, 
embattled minority in the United States that's been treated with so much injustice and uncaring. That just seems like, right, you'd want to start with that. And if it doesn't, if you can't find someone, if it doesn't work out, that's like a different problem, but that you'd want to have a very robust um, system for foster care and adoption within tribes, and that you'd want to really respect that and nurture that as opposed to just, um, you know, treating this child like any other child. And, you know, I should also say in the foster care and adoption context in the U.S., there's been more and more of a push for kinship ties when kids are placed and a sense that, you know, when you take black kids out of the black community, that's not really very good for them or a good thing for the black community. And I mean, to me, a lot of those things just kind of make sense, at least as like first principles of um, what to do with babies. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Um, When you, John Dickerson, are recovering from this mammoth week that you've had and you're definitely kicking back with a drink, what are you chattering to the little Dickersons about? Oh, my God. I forgot to come up with a chatter. That Um, is really profound. I could go first. No, yeah, leave, let's I leave was, that in. Let's leave that in, yeah. John. You've been no, so I, busy. It's a, part, it, it's a perfect um, encapsulation of this week's like totally destabilizing um, thing. We'll just take half of your minutes from your chatter last week and just give. Yeah, you yeah, for exactly. That. We people need. A, I liked what you were saying, Emily, when you were talking about absorbing the decision or the arguments. Like you need to absorb last week's chatter, so I don't want to get in the way. Emily, I hope you're not so overwhelmed. What's your chatter? I'm not, but I have a chatter about the election, which I want to talk about these ballot measures in which um, voters directly confronted uh, questions about whether they want to hang on to abortion rights or not in their state. And all of the ballot measures went in the direction of preserving rights to abortion. So we have votes in Kentucky and Vermont and California and Michigan and Montana. And it's just interesting to see that even in red and purple states, when you ask people this question straight up, they don't (laughs) want to lose the right to an abortion. And we saw this obviously in the Kansas election over the summer. I was reading some of the um, abortion opponent response to the midterm results more generally, and there was a lot of blaming of messaging, like if you just change the messaging. And I don't think so. I mean, a solid majority of Americans think there should usually at least be a right to an abortion. They, you know, would probably like there to be some limits, but they don't want it simply taken away. And I think that's just an important um, political truth that we kind of lost sight of. And it suggests to me that some of the really aggressive tactics to try to prevent women from crossing state lines or try to prevent abortion pills from getting into the states, maybe that is going to have a real political price if Republicans pursue them. And so I'm very interested in how this election affects that dynamic over the next chapter of um, the political battle over abortion in the country. Right. I mean, it was interesting that DeSantis had this tremendous victory. And one of the reasons he had this tremendous victory, people are saying, is maybe that he just didn't push on abortion. They Florida passed a 15-week ban, but he hasn't pushed for more than that. And that, that might have been strategically wise. My chatter is just an experience that I'm having right now, which is that I am on a Twitter fast, not because of Elon Musk. It is not, I'm not on strike because of Elon Musk. I don't have an opinion about Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter, really. But because I was just feeling bad about Twitter, and it was made me feel stressed and unhappy. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a happy person. And I must say that I'm about I'm a week into not being on Twitter, I do look at my DMs. Um, and I will tweet a GabFest episode, but I'm not reading Twitter at all. And it's kind of great. I'm not sure exactly what I have more time for. But I definitely have more time for something. Listeners, you also have chatters. You've tweeted them to us. I don't know that because I don't check Twitter, so I didn't see them. But someone else is checking that uh, at Slate Gabfest Twitter account. But you also email them to us at Gabfest at Slate.com. And our listener chatter this week comes from Scott Grant. Hello, Political Gabfest. This is Scott Grant from Baltimore, Maryland. This chatter is about the do wine with a side of tangentially related presidential history. My partner and I were traveling 
in California's central coast, and we were hiking around the Guadalupe Nipomo Dune Park, where Cecil B. DeMille had filmed the Ten Commandments. We worked up a thirst. Off to wine tasting in San Luis Obispo, we stopped at a tasting room called Dunites. The man running our tasting told us that the winery was named after a group of wild artists who lived in the dunes in the early part of the last century. Turns out around 1918 or so, some people started living in the dunes. Mystics, nudists, artists, writers, and hermits, if Wikipedia is to be believed. Sometime in 1930s, Chester A. Arthur's grandson, Gavin Arthur, who was a sexologist, moved in and started a magazine and commune called Moy Mel. I totally recommend visiting the park and tasting room. That's our show for today. The Gapfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. We're on tour, incidentally. Go check them out. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Follow us on Twitter at at SlateGadFest and tweet chatter to us there. And also, please send us your conundrums so that we can have great conundrums to slate.com slash conundrums. You can just go to that website, slate.com slash conundrums. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, we talked a lot about the election. We talked about the big topics in the election, but we also wanted to hit just particular uh, aspects of the election that that enticed us, entrapped us, delighted us, uh, surprised us, maybe at a more local level or something that just a race that just didn't didn't quite catch the attention that would put it on the front page of uh, Emily's New York Times. So anyone want to start? Because it's partially what I make my living off of, but we do it a lot here, interested always in how much any of this stuff really matters. <laughs> but, so and by what do I mean by that? Some of the late breaking questions in the Georgia race and the uh, Pennsylvania race um, have been around, you know, what we might call October surprises. So in Pennsylvania, it was Fetterman's performance in the debate. In Georgia, it was the second abortion that um, Herschel Walker was accused of having paid for uh or maybe it was the combination of the first and the second. In the exit polls, with the normal caveats that we have to make about exit polls, but um, so in the exit polls in um, Georgia, when you asked voters, when did you make your finally make your decision? Um, they ask, was it in October, before October, or in the last few weeks? So in the Walker-Warnock race, um, those who made their decision before October picked um, Warnock, but by a very small, it's 50-49, so basically split. But then in October, it's 50-45, Warnock-Walker, which would suggest um, that Warnock, that something changed in the race, that that late deciders are going to Warnock over Walker. There is some scholarship and folk wisdom that, that says, actually, it's the challenger who sometimes gets the late-breaking votes. So this would contradict that, but it would, so that would be explained by a late-breaking um, piece of news in Pennsylvania. Same question. Who wins the October vote? Oz by 58-40. Fetterman had before that been winning 55-45 among those voters. But in October, suddenly Oz is an 18 point, um, uh, 18 points ahead with the 17% of the electorate that said they decided in October. Which is interesting because when you look at the national exit polls, those who decided in October... The 19% who said they do picked the Democrats 55-42, so a 13-point margin for um, the in-party for those deciders in October. So why did that happen nationally October? Could it be the Paul Pelosi attack that was at the end of October? What was happening in the nation that changed? Um, because all other time periods in the national exit polls the Republican candidate gets picked over the Democratic candidate. So anybody who decided before October or after October, but in October, it, the 20% roughly who picked, uh, said they made their decision, made it for Democrats over Republicans. So um, this raises a lot of questions. A, should you even read exit polls this um, closely? Should you uh, trust people's 
time stamping of when they made their decisions, all super valid questions. But it also suggests, at least at some level, that these things that happened in campaigns in Warnock, uh, Walker, and in um, the Otterman, Fe- uh, F- Oz, Fetterman, Otterman, Fezerman, um, that, that, that these late-breaking developments did have an effect on the race um, so that all of our mind-bending analysis of, of those races was warranted because it actually real things might have been happening. I'll I'll go next. I, so I live in Washington D.C. and there was an interesting initiative on the ballot, um, eighty-two, a voter initiative, to get rid of the tipped minimum wage. So in D.C., as in, I think basically everywhere in the U.S., there's a tipped minimum wage. So if you are a tipped worker, you can be paid a wage that is much lower than the basic minimum wage. In D.C., the tipped minimum wage was about five dollars. I think the the basic minimum wage I think is more like fifteen dollars. Um, and the idea is that you will make up the even though you're only earning five dollars an hour in in your wage, you'll make it up in tips, and that's fine. And so there was a voter initiative on the ballot here in D.C. to get rid of that and to say that there's no such thing as a tip minimum wage. If you are a worker, you get a minimum wage of fifteen dollars. Uh, and this actually, we had this as a voter initiative a few years ago, which passed, but then it was subverted by the D.C. Council. This was basically the same initiative brought back. And it passed overwhelmingly. D.C. voters voted overwhelmingly to get rid of the tip minimum wage. And uh, I, I voted for it. I voted for it um, actually after I listened to a CityCast D.C. episode about it. Uh, and just but it, I didn't vote for it strongly. I voted for it mostly because I think it's going to be a very interesting experiment. D.C. is a city that has a lot of restaurants. It will always have a lot of restaurants. And what is going to happen when you change the economic sort of superstructure or, or, or infrastructure of it and where where your labor costs have suddenly gone up the and you have to change your pricing structure if you're a restaurant owner to reflect that. And is it going to get is it does it mean there will be no tipped restaurants? There'll be no tipping in D.C. restaurants. Does it mean uh, prices in D.C. restaurants will go up, but tipping will remain as a sort of supplement because that people have an expectation of tipping and as a, as a service. And and so mostly I'm just interested in it as, as a, as an experiment that will allow us to see, can we take the U S to a culture that's more like Europe, which is a much less tipping centric culture. And I think where, where it's, it's to the benefit of both workers and, and those of us who are customers of those workers, um, this, that sort of subservient relationship and the harassment, particularly that women get being tipped employees is uh, is troublesome. And if we can find a way to move away from it, I think that would be good. And so I'm looking forward to this DC experiment. I don't know whether it's going to work or whether it's going to kill a bunch of restaurants. Hopefully it'll be fine. I mean, not tipping works fine in Europe. I mean, anyway, I want to be hopeful about it. I don't like tipping. Right, but it works fine because there are, because the economic, it's like those restaurants are built on an economic structure, which assumed that they have to pay their workers a wage of a certain amount. Like that's an expectation in when you suddenly change the rules. So that a restaurant that's in DC has to pay $15 an hour, but a restaurant that's a hundred yards away in Maryland doesn't like what happens. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, I want to be optimistic about it because for all the reasons that you said, um, I had a bunch of other ballot measures that I was excited about. So Arizona, 73% of the voters said they wanted disclosure of all political donations, $5,000 and up. Excellent. Good. Less dark money seems to be very popular. Colorado, two free meals at school for anybody, regardless of income. So not a targeted relief program, but one that just makes it... um erases the stigma of getting free lunch or free breakfast at school because anyone can ask for it. And so you're not saying that you're a poor kid by doing that. And finally, Connecticut. We could have early voting in Connecticut. Hmm, you might say, well, lots of states already have early voting. And isn't Connecticut one of those Yankee states that might pride itself on access to the ballot? But we have zero early voting in Connecticut, actually. And so it would be really great to have some early voting in Connecticut. Let's get on board to uh, something that many Southern and Western and states, lots of places have adopted a long time ago. Yeah. I've just, DC has uh, adopted early voting. Maybe it's had it for a while. I've, I've adopted it in the last couple of elections. It's so much better. It makes life so much easier. Can I add one, another one? Yeah. So in South Dakota, 
they decided they voted by referendum to expand Medicaid uh, under the which is allowable under the Affordable Care Act. And to me, this um, is a fascinating thing about politics and policy. So South Dakota joins uh, a number of other states, Idaho, Maine, Missouri, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Utah, that all voted to expand Medicaid. When the ACA originally passed, a number of these states, um, most of them with Republican governors or legislatures, um, said, we don't want the Medicaid expansion. Um, And the Medicaid expansion is basically to provide people with incomes up up to 138% of the federal poverty poverty level with Medicaid coverage. So that's about $18,000 of of income uh, for an individual. Basically, to have the ACA cover people who are... uh, experiencing poverty at that period of time. Um, And a lot of the red states said, no, we don't want this because um, either they did it on sort of social government socialism grounds or that the commitment that it puts us on the hook for Medicaid um, expenditures that we don't want to, even though it's federal help for a while, ultimately it causes an obligation for the state and we've got better ways to deal with it. Well, over time now, these states have decided, no, actually, this is a good idea. And The reason I think it's interesting politically is this, of course, was supposed to have been or was a huge disaster for Barack Obama in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act passed, huge backlash, big losses, lots of analysis about, you know, how horrible it is. But now that it's been 12 years, the number of people who are covered whose lives are not ruined by the bankruptcy of um, not having health insurance has changed immeasurably millions and millions of people's lives. The policy itself, which used to be when you ran in Republican politics, you had to say, my first commitment will be to re- remove the Affordable Care Act. Nobody talks about it anymore. Um, and so for me, whether you uh, think it's a good idea to cover lots and lots of people who um, otherwise wouldn't have um, medical insurance um, or not, um, it is an example of the choices politicians have to make about the short term and the long term. And when Obama sold this to his Democratic colleagues, he said this will matter, you know, sort of in history's eyes above everything else. It basically turns out that he was right, though lots and lots of people lost their seats um, and paid the short term political um, price. Lots and lots of other people are covered and have the stability uh, that comes from being um covered and not having to worry about that as you're trying to juggle so many other things as anybody who's only making $18,000 a year would surely have to. I'm so glad you brought that up, John. It's the most important one. All right. Bye, Slate Plus.